COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. Over the past nine weeks, this series has lifted up otherwise overlooked facts and unspoken conditions of COVID-19's disastrous possibilities. We talk to activists, journalists, writers, academics, policy analysts, healers, and sentinels, all to give light to the stories that we were unlikely to see with the dominant frames that shape mainstream news and discourse. For us, it's not just about offering a different set of facts, but activating critical frames from which to engage these margins. The work of social justice is the work of narrative reconstruction, building new stories around facts that are often disregarded, invisibilized, and taken for granted as acceptable and unremarkable features of social life. The struggle at hand is not simply one of survival, but a struggle of interpretation, a struggle over what the story of this moment is and will be for future generations if we are to survive. So we've gathered over the last nine weeks countless shards of reality, and now we can sit at the feet of the master glassblowers to watch and to learn how they see what they see, what they note, and what they capture. We'll hear first from Kiese Lehman, who joins us from Oxford, Mississippi. Lehman is a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Mississippi and the author of the novel Long Division. We'll then turn to Viet Tan Nguyen. Nguyen is Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. His best-selling book, The Sympathizer, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. Finally, we'll hear from Arundhati Roy in Delhi, India. Roy is the author of the 1997 Man Booker Prize winning The God of Small Things and is the recipient of countless awards. So let's dive in with K.S.A. Lehman. In response to your exquisite memoir, Heavy, Time Magazine wrote, how do you love authentically when lies feel so familiar? So what are the lies America is telling itself today and how are they shaping the story of this pandemic? Thank you for having me, first of all. Um, that's a big question, Kim. I, I guess I just want to start by saying that one of the lies I wanted to tell myself when the pandemic sort of hit was that there's a beginning to this particular virus and that there'll be an end to it. Um, every morning I wake up, I ask myself what I want to lie about. That list is often usually long. I am from Mississippi. Our unpaid essential labor created the American economy. And so this moment is crucial, but it's equally crucial for me that we remember that essential unpaid workers in Mississippi and their descendants were not valued as essential workers, even human beings with interiorities worthy of like essential protection, not just from Trump, but by Washington, from Lincoln, from Roosevelt, from Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and Obama. When a pandemic hits a country as willfully neglected and neglecting as ours, a country run by whom the worst of white folk deemed presidential, I think it's easy to call that suffering sanctity and eventually to call that destruction dawn. And when you do that, I think you get what we have now. What we have now is a continued suffering of essential and expendable human beings. Most of human my state are black women. Um, and we also get a country longing to get back to like this manufactured celebration, which always come 
at the expense of humiliated, expendable workers. So I think I just think I need to say that first because I, I couldn't get to that um, for the first two or three months of this pandemic. We take care of my grandmother. My grandmother um, born, was born and raised in Forest in Scott County, Mississippi. She worked in those Mississippi fields, unpaid. She eventually worked as a domestic um, in the homes of wealthy white people. And then she was quote unquote lucky enough to get picked to work the line at a chicken plant. That was a big deal. One, because she was a black woman. Two, because she was a black woman. And, and what the poultry industry really realized is that they could play, pay black women less for more and better work. And so every day she went to work in the morning, she got up at 4.30 in the morning, she left the house, she didn't have a glove, she didn't have a mask, all she wore was a hairnet because the white folk who ran the plant didn't want her kind of hair falling into their chicken, their product. You know, my grandma was 91 now, we had to move her up from Scott County where she spent most of her life working at chicken plants because of like these massive COVID outbreaks that were happening in the plant. And if people remember a year ago in August, ICE raided the plants in Scott County. One of the plants they raided was a plant where my grandmother used to work. And during that raid, no one seemed to care at all about the children and nobody at all talked about the conditions of that plant. So what I need to do is ask myself what it meant for my grandmama to walk out of white people's home and choose to work in a place where she had to stand up for eight hours a day, cutting the bellies open of chickens with no mask, and what it means also for our Latinx brothers and sisters and gender queer folk who are literally our neighbors, they literally live next door to us, to have their, their, their children taken and have everybody in the world talk about the raids but not talk about the conditions in which they were living. So there's a lot to talk about in this pandemic, but I believe that humiliation is like the primary dish being served. And my belief is that like death is kind of like a, a side of humiliation and inevitable outcome of systemic humiliation. And so like the economic and the political and really global dimensions of this humiliation and the necessity of sustainable pushback and really like communal pleasure making are some things that I hope we can talk about um, today. Thank you for that, KSA. And, and as, as you are always want to do, you introduce um, dimensions beyond what, what we initially see. So the many ways in which you've written about your grandmother's life lived in that paradox between essential and expendable. And then you go beyond that to the embodiment of this paradox, sometimes even within our communities and our families, looking at interior dimensions of power, whether it's racial power, uh, gender power, intra-communal uh, familial as well as intercommunal. And one of the things that you've just mentioned, I want you to say a little bit more about, you, you've looked at the emerging patterns of who wears a mask and who does not. What goes on in the eyes of the mask wearers that you see, that you want to draw attention to that deepens this tragedy? Right. And I think, I think Kim, that's where it gets... That's where it gets tricky for me because you know when, when we when, when my grandmama was brought up from Scott County to Jackson, um, which is a, a capital of my city, um, and then when I came and came back up to Oxford, you know Oxford is one of these cities that is seen or deemed as particularly liberal in Mississippi. But when the when the governor gave the the open order, I mean you know I drive downtown and and you see all of these essential black workers either working as cooks as waiters as bouncers, and all of them had on masks, right? And there were masses of white folks trying to get into these bars and these restaurants. And when I drove around the square, none of them had on masks. And I just want us to put the politics of humiliation at the center and ask ourselves, like, what does that mean? And ask ourselves what it would mean for a country to essentially pay essential workers. And, and in the absence of that, I just think we have to talk about what I feel like is an intentional desire to kill, yes, but to humiliate. That is where my cousins and my uncles and my aunties and my grandmother and my mother are living now, right? Like how do you go to work every day knowing that part of your job means you have to protect, you know, these various patrons from a disease that they aren't doing anything to protect you from? I think that's the question of Black Americans in this country, and I think it's a particular question of Black women in my state, most of whom are the essential workers. 
So profound, so profound. And, and, I, I, and I want to come back shortly to the double-edged sword of humiliation as well, because as we know, you know, one of the justifications that now circulates around the demands, the armed demands of reopening the state is, you know, the humiliation of not being allowed to work, not having freedom. So, you know, humiliation circulates in, in ways that are sometimes really difficult to consistently locate and politicize towards progressive purposes. So with respect to parts of the story that, that are being told in particularly specious ways or, or problematic ways, I guess. I'm going to turn to you, Viet, to talk about sort of the, the double-edged dimension of the demand for the data. So for the first, um, you know, several weeks, there was, you know, sort of no data that tracked what many of us knew we were seeing. And then data did start to come forward and people are trying to use data to magnify the significance of what the threat is. I wonder what you have been seeing with regard to how the data, the metrics that the data are being used to uh, sort of tell Americans how significant this moment is. First of all, thank you for having me on this fabulous uh, broadcast, Kimberly. And, you know, one of the uh, ways that we've been measuring time now has been through this count of death. And uh, every week we start to see the, the death toll rising for Americans. And when I see this kind of death count, one of the things I'm reminded of, of course, is the body count from the Vietnam War, when you could tune in every night and see how many Americans have died fighting in the Vietnam War. And this point was already brought home because one of the ways by which we've been talking about the American death count has been comparing it to the deaths of Americans in the various wars that Americans have fought. And so when we reached the 58,000 death count, for example, the milestone there was, well, that was how many Americans died during the Vietnam War. And isn't that horrible and tragic, which it certainly is. But I came from Vietnam as a refugee uh, from the Vietnam War, and I can't help but think that the death count is a metric or a statistic that can also shadow our reality in, in different ways. So I think of 58,000 dead Americans. I also think about the 3 million or so Vietnamese who died during the Vietnam War, and the 3 million or so Laotians and Cambodians who died during the years of the war and afterwards. And I have a suspicion that most Americans have no idea how many Vietnamese people died during the Vietnam War, and probably have no idea that the war was fought in Laos and Cambodia. And so what this tells me is that Americans have a particular relationship to death, that is quite American-centric, which is normal, but it's also related to our attitudes about who we are as Americans, our notions of American exceptionalism, our notions of American individualism that are completely tied up with our response to COVID-19. And of course, if we look at American history, rugged individualism is another code word for American conquest, westward expansion, settler colonization, genocide, slavery, all these things are part of America as well. But most of the rest of the world, or much of the rest of the world, has been willing to overlook these other aspects of American society and favor and praise American individualism. Well, this American individualism is precisely one of the reasons why we can't contain the death count at the moment, because Americans can't restrain themselves and act collectively in our own interest. And this has two implications, I think. One, of course, is our utter disregard for the death count or how this COVID is impacting the rest of the world. I think we have a very poor sense of how the rest of the world has been, has been dealing with and has been suffering from COVID. And the other thing about the death count is, as you said, it has now started to illuminate the differential ways by which death affects Americans. So at the point when we thought COVID would kill everybody, we were all in this together. Now, as the statistics are showing that more black and brown people, native people, Pacific Islanders are suffering disproportionately from this, as Kiesa has also pointed out, there's been much less regard for the importance of the death count for Americans. Uh, now the death burden is being unequally shared as it always has been in American history. So COVID again is revealing the systemic ways by which this disease can't be separated from everything else that makes us Americans uh, that is part of the so-called American exceptionalism. And you know, I, you wrote about ideas that, that won't survive the virus or at least things that we hope won't survive. And one is, as you just mentioned, what we are admired for is this rugged individualism and the negative and naked underbelly of that 
um, is frequently, you know, not seen. I'm wondering whether in literary conversation, uh, there's a, a similar kind of reckoning with the fact that although it's laid bare, um, the laying of it, its bareness may in fact just prompt another sort of narrative confrontation with the fact that as you started, uh, somebody's really just don't matter. So even though we now see the naked underbelly, does that you know, create a, a moment of self-reflection or a moment of doubling down on some of the most um, negative dimensions of our self-regard? You know, this country is built on contradictions. And of course, the, the most basic contradiction is between our ideals of uh, freedom and liberty and so on, and the fact that the country was built on genocide and slavery and, and expansion and colonization. These are facts. I don't think these facts are in dispute. But as you're implying, how we interpret these facts and tell stories about them is absolutely critical to how we understand ourselves. And now more than possibly at, at any other moment in American history for quite a while, we're uh, recognizing that this is a country of two different kinds of stories. So yes, progressives, liberals, radicals, Democrats, and so on are telling a story about a crisis in American exceptionalism. And at the most extreme, not just a crisis in American exceptionalism, but the end of the American empire. Um, on the other side, of course, uh, people are telling a completely different story that we can overcome this as we have supposedly overcome other kinds of challenges in the past through our rugged individualism. What I think about this is that storytelling is built on, on empathy. It's one of its most basic um, elements. But empathy is deeply politicized, has always been deeply politicized. We're not naturally empathetic to everybody. We were, we're empathetic in, a, in ways that are culturally ingrained, politically ingrained. We learn how to see and to recognize different kinds of people. And that is something that uh, you know, historically in this country has been a really difficult issue. Who do we recognize? Who do we see? What kind of stories do we tell? And unfortunately, the outcome, I think, is that for those of us who, felt that, who feel that we are marginalized, exploited, unseen, rendered invisible, humiliated in American society, no one else can tell our stories but us. This is why the act of storytelling and narrative is so crucial. This is why we depend on our storytellers to uh, be a part of this struggle to get our stories out there. And probably the last thing I'll say about this is that in the end, we are all storytellers. We replicate, we reproduce stories in conversations we have over the dining table, in conversations we have with our colleagues. It's on us to recognize these narratives, to contest them. We all have the possibility of at least engaging with the people around us and our stories there. Thank you, thank you, Viet. Um, Arundhati, um, Viet just mentioned the Make America Great Again. So I wanna, I wanna bring you in on the convergences between uh, India and the US in the pre-existing condition that shapes this moment. And some, some part of it may take up the fact that this disease elevates dimensions of the embodied uh, histories of social hierarchy in both of our countries. So if Modi and, and Trump and his supporters sort of see common storylines with each other, what's that telling us that we need to be seeing uh, as you know, sort of the non-participants in the throngs that come out to see the two of them together? Uh, thanks, uh, Kim, for, for having me here. I, I, uh, I'm getting such a lovely view into what uh, you know people who don't live in america don't get told actually so you know i spent so much of my time and writing contesting these terms like america and india and china because what do they mean eventually when someone asks me you know tell us about women in india and i'm always like which woman you know india such a as is america when people i mean most people in India would look at these numbers or figures that are coming out of America and think of America as the nation of white people, you know, and not think of the fact that there is this hierarchy which so reflects a kind of hierarchy here. So, uh, uh, you know, this illness, COVID, is, is creating a class uh, which is going to be separated from another class the working class whose bodies will now be seen as a biohazard and that have to be hermetically sealed off from each other where touch is toxic. And this 
in India is a society that has practiced for centuries untouchability. It invented untouchability. It created human beings that other human beings said were untouchable, were polluted. It has a hierarchy of purity and pollution, uh, much more complex in terms of its divisions than race. And, and uh, the difference being that it's, divine, it's supposedly divinely sanctioned. So you're, you're playing out uh, you know, something of the sins of your past. But what, what you asked, you know, what COVID has done just in the way that it enters the human body and amplifies previous illnesses and infirmities, in the same way it enters societies and exposes their, their inequalities and infirmities. In India, uh, you know, the, the, the crisis is, I, I, I'm rarely like this, but I can hardly tell you and speak about the scale at which it's happening. When there were 500 cases or 540 cases and 10 deaths, Modi announced a lockdown. Four hours notice, 1.38 billion people were locked down. And the next day, you found millions of people stranded in cities with no food, no water, no shelter, no protection. And they began to walk hundreds of miles home to the villages they had come from. They were people who have been erased from the imagination of this country, erased from literature, erased from poetry, erased from cinema. Recently, the poor in India were very much part of storytelling. But when India became aligned with the free market and with capitalism and aspirational, we had to now pretend that this huge mass of people didn't exist and doesn't exist. And on the day of the lockdown, the day after the lockdown, suddenly they made themselves visible, like a chemical experiment, you know, this exodus began 55 days ago, and it's still on, it's still on. But you have, uh, you have people being beaten by the police, then they started walking on the railway tracks, they are beaten on the railway tracks, uh, they, have, they have got run over, you know, hundreds of people have been killed, they are still walking, they are being held in these camps, there are visuals of people being, being held like animals and sprayed with bleach, you know, by, by, by the police. So we have a crisis of health, of health beyond COVID, a crisis of hunger, a crisis of, uh, of uh, hatred. These are all parallel stories. You know, when we talk about workers and frontline workers being disposable, this has been the case always, isn't it? I mean, the wars that America has fought, uh, as Viet says, three million people died in Vietnam. Look at what happened in the Iraq war, you know, where first you had sanctions, where people were not allowed to get medicine when they were ill. A million people died, according to the UN. And Madeleine Albright said, it's a hard price, but we think it's worth it. Just from the sanctions, forget about the war, you know. And all the workers who are feeding the American way of life, the people who work in mines, the people who, I mean, they've all frontline workers whose lungs turn to stone from the dust that comes from the mines. I've been to, I, and this is not just American capitalism now, Indian capitalism too. I've been to villages where, you know, in every village you have a person whose lungs have literally turned to stone, sitting there and rocking. 150,000 people have died of tuberculosis, you know, which has now been made into a poor person's disease and therefore it doesn't matter. It, it just carries on as a background score. If, if you had the same kind of television reporting about tuberculosis as you have about COVID, the, the, the number of people dying is huge. Every year, a million children under five in India die of diarrhea, you know? And, and so you have these now a situation where capitalism has created these inequalities. Now COVID has amplified them. And you have authoritarian figures like Trump and Modi who, who are similar and very different. I mean, Trump is like 
to me a kind of uh, a, a, a factory waste that arrived and is is contested by the media even the elite media in the us uh, you know is constantly criticizing him whereas modi is a product of fascist cultural guild that was set up in 1925 that called muslims the jews of germany muslims of india are like the jews of germany so that organization which has when he was chief minister in a state called gujarat he uh, there was a massacre of 2500 muslims slaughtered on the streets in cities and so on it only increased his popularity you know and now he is the 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 prime minister and just today i was i was looking at the fact that um, a politician of his party was talking to people and saying that, you know, the Muslims, they are the spreaders of this disease. You must make sure that there aren't any Muslims in your neighborhood. This is a jihad that they are doing on us. You know, Muslims are being lynched. You have uh, television channels with hashtag Corona Jihad or hashtag human bomb, calling them super spreaders, very much in the way that Jews were accused of spreading typhus by the Nazis. A man was brutally beaten up by the police, a man with a beard who was going to hospital because he had severe diabetes. And then he turned out not to be a Muslim. He was a Hindu with a beard. And the police uh, said, sorry, uh, we thought you were a Muslim. This is their explanation. Kiese, I want to come back to you to pick up that conversation that we started to have about humiliation. One way, I guess, of thinking about why we see gun-toting, militia-assaulting, sort of dominant sensibilities about lawmaking in a time of crisis is uh, in, in some way the, the mobilization of humiliation. There, there is also a broader historical narrative that you know, so much of what has caused uh, you know, worldwide discord is responses to humiliation, either felt humiliation or you know, actual uh, intention to humiliate. So I guess part of the challenge of distinguishing various modalities of humiliation is in the story. How, is you, as a storyteller yourself, uh, do you shift to talk about the humiliation that you identified earlier, uh, particularly the humiliation of Black women uh, being forced to serve people and protect them in ways that they're not protected, and, and the projected humiliation of the you know, gun toters in the capital. What what are the ways that storytelling helps to distinguish between those? That's a great question, Kim. So for me, I think I always need to deal with what's easy and what's hard. And what's easy for me is, and what's been easy for me for the last three months, shamefully, is that I've wanted these people and the people who created Trump which are the people and the sensibilities that also created the arena that my grandmother could really work unpaid labor in. I've wanted them to suffer and I've wanted to humiliate them much more than I've wanted me and my family and our folks to be free. And, and so I, I need to confront that as an artist, right? Like why, why in this moment, and in several other moments in my life, have I wanted these people to suffer and be humiliated much more than I wanna be free? And I think to answer that question, it's more than implication, it's more than confession. It's about truthfully like winding your way into the ways you humiliate, not just in interpersonal relationships, but in transactional relationships with capital, you know? And so like when I started to think a lot about those gun-toting dudes who were trying to, mostly men who were trying to, you know, I don't know what the fuck they were actually like wanting to get free of. I can't actually get into white folks' minds that way. But I thought about the way March 10th, you know, right on the cusp of when people think the pandemic broke out in America, I was paid to get on a plane and go to Cincinnati and then ultimately go to West Virginia and go to New York. I knew I should not have gotten on that plane. One, because I helped take care of someone who was immunely compromised. Two, because I'm a big black boy. And most importantly, which was three or four, because there were tons of essential workers in that airport, the people who drove me to the airport, the folks who worked on that airplane, the people who had to clean the building that I gave a reading at, who were going to be more exposed to this virus had I not done it. But because I am the progeny of people who were unpaid labor, 
their humiliation didn't matter, right? The fact that I was like aiding in a humiliation, not just like, you know, giving people COVID or potentially creating spaces where people could get COVID. Like I was aiding in the humiliation of essential workers so I could get a paycheck to help take care of myself, but also take care of someone who has been essentially underpaid her entire life. And so as writers, we have to get in there. We have to take the tools that the social scientists have given us, but I just feel like we can't lose the body, like the bodily experience of getting in that car, knowing you shouldn't be getting in that car, getting on that airplane, knowing you shouldn't be getting on that airplane, opening up that check, wondering should you feel joy and or sadness? What do you do with this check? And I just feel like artists, and I feel like we're all artists to a certain extent, are like perfectly situated to slow those moments down and sort of move away from this easy, you know, Trump and them are fucked up. Hell yeah, Trump and them are fucked up. Hell yeah, they seem like like <laughs> sons and nephews and nieces of the devil to me. But the but the sad thing is like some of that fuck shit they got in them, I know I have in me. And I'm and, and I've humiliated folk in a personally, and I perpetually humiliate people in these economic transactions. So I can't write like a brief about that. I can't write an analysis about that, but I can create artful journeys that explore and implicate and move and i think that's what a lot of storytellers can do in this moment right now yeah and and when i think about that case and bring it into conversation with you know some of the armchair uh theorization that we in progressive circles have generated for uh decades you know the the idea that you know when the hammer hits us all that will be the moment where, you know, the great awakening happens. I mean, that's sort of the top line. And I do think your honesty in being able to say, well, behind some of that was, y'all going to get it too someday. So it, it does open up for us some dimensions of what we hold to be kind of the politics of everybody is in this, at some point, actually a desire for others to experience some of what they've made us experience. So I think that's important to, to, to be able, especially for writers, to be able to force us to look at. You also mentioned uh, other, other things that caused you to you know, step back a moment. And I, I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about how you heard some of your students talk about you know, what, this, what this moment portended, the celebratory dimension of it. Yeah, I mean, I think for better and a whole lot of worse, like the white liberal or good white folk have been situated throughout American storytelling as the center, actually, of American storytelling. Um, and, you know, and, and also think young people should be allowed to be ignorant. I think the whole point of school is like, you know, allow yourself to be ignorant so you can throw out some ignorant ideas and they can come back um, remixed and revised. But, you know, before we, we, before, before people thought that this country was like in the throes of like the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I had several students who happened to be white and would identify as liberal and or radical saying, you know, this is great. I think this is going to take out all the, all, all the old white people. I can't wait. You know, like saying it, not whispering it, like saying it in class. Um, and so, 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 you know, Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> uh, Faulkner, shit, all these other writers have, have, you know, again, for better or worse, put that kind of liberal sensibility on the table and talked to us about how it needs to be chopped up. But I just think it's very interesting to me, coming from Mississippi, a place where white folk will reach through their chest, their own chest, to snatch the heart out of black, indigenous, brown folks. That's how my state is born, right? And so it was interesting in those classrooms to hear students who are brilliant think they were, they were, they were performing some sort of like revolutionary gesture to say that they hope ultimately that the white folk who are responsible for what they think is the evil of this country died. Um, and as a writer, what do you do with that? Do you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, when I sit down to write about that, I can't, it's not what I'm doing now. I can't just say it. Like there's some dimension to that, right? But I wonder how we talk about the dimensions of that without centering this like white sort of neoliberal, ultra liberal, questionably radical self that often gets centered a lot in our literature because I'm not interested in doing that. But how do we talk about that and not center it is something that I'm really trying to think about with my new project. 
Mm-hmm. And Viet, you also had a moment of, I guess, encounter and, and surprise about the impact of COVID, you know, sort of the generational dimensions of it. How, how are you thinking about that and potentially incorporating it into the stories that you want to try to tell, either through fiction or nonfiction? Well, I think one of the more surprising aspects of all of this is the fact that you know, initially we thought that COVID would really disproportionately impact the elderly, which it has. And the collective American response to that, or at least a significant part of American society, have been to shrug their shoulders and to say, well, that's too bad. They were going to die anyway. And, you know, the implication, of course, is also they're no longer useful to capitalism. And I think, you know, maybe this has changed the perceptions of a lot of, of elderly people who have been invested in the American system and the, and the investment in the idea that America is about supporting life when, to a large extent, America has also been about exploiting people until they're dead. We're undergoing a shock to the system for so many of us, ourselves individually, ourselves as parts of certain groups, and ourselves as part of a country in relationship to the entire world, where we see the callousness of the system that we live in and our connections to other people. And so I think this is really crucial. I mean, one of the challenges that we're faced with is, are we going to retreat back into ourselves, into our own clusters, into our own communities, or are we going to recognize the solidarities that bind us, uh, either the solidarities of humanity or the other kind of connection of exploitation? And I think for writers, that's, that's a challenge we also have to recognize. And a lot of the storytelling that takes place in American letters is oftentimes extremely individualistic, extremely isolated. So there could be a really, really real possibility that COVID-era literature would be about people you know, trying to get away from this in the Hamptons. And there'll be another kind of COVID-era literature that will be exactly about trying to point out what our connections happen to be. And again, writers from communities of color, uh, you know, writers from marginalized communities have always been trying to do that. It's one of the crucial marks of, of, our, of our kind of storytelling is to try to stress how we're connected to each other. And I'll just you know, end with a note about my own particular uh, community, Asian Americans. We've witnessed the rise in anti-Asian racism in various ways, uh, describing this as the Chinese virus, for example, justifying rising incidents of anti-Asian racism. And what this has proven for Asian Americans is that uh, for many people who have thought that they were welcomed into American society as the model minority, they realize, well, we've always occupied a very ambiguous place in American society in which we've, some of us, have thought that we've had privilege. And now in this era, the anti-Asian racism has demonstrated that we, along with many other populations, are very easily disposed of as well. So what do we do with that? Do we simply try to defend ourselves? Or do we try to recognize that our plight is connected to the plights of so many other peoples in this country as well? So Asian Americans also face this challenge of either retreating into themselves and defending themselves or trying to connect their stories to the stories of others uh, in American society. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so when, when you see these moments, does it raise for you more of the urgency of what stories need to be told or more of the limitation of what storytelling can do in political, politically charged moments like these. And I, I would imagine it's both and. So how you think about that is what I'm really interested in. You know, so the structural place of Asian Americans in American society is that we're supposed to be in the middle, we're supposed to be the model, and we're supposed to be docile and compliant. And part of what goes along with that in terms of storytelling is that we're expected to perform gratitude for what we have and to apologize um, for our place in American society. Storytelling here is really crucial because as a storyteller, my stance has been don't apologize <laughs> and don't be grateful. You know, so for example, I'm here as a refugee from the Vietnam War and a lot of Vietnamese refugees feel grateful to the United States for rescuing them. Well, that may be true, but we wouldn't need to be rescued unless we'd been bombed by the United States in the first place. You know? <laughs> and you have to be able to say these kinds of things. You have to refuse apology. You have to refuse docility. It's a crucial aspect of what makes a great storyteller a great storyteller. No one ever became a great storyteller by apologizing. <laughs> you, know, you have to be assertive. You have to recognize your place in American society. So Asian Americans don't have to apologize or to beg for Americanness. You know, we are Americans by dint of being here and by dint of everything you know, multiple generations have done. But you know, one of the things that Asian Americans have always tried to do is to say that we need to claim America, to assert our Americanness against being seen as perpetual foreigners. Now, that's important. But... What does it mean to, to claim America? Yet when we claim America, we have to claim all of it, all of the United States of America, which means not just a democracy and the liberty and the American exceptionalism and the capitalism and all those supposedly good things. We have to claim the entire history of conquest and genocide and slavery and except, you know, that we 
benefit from, that immigrants benefit from in coming to this country. And that's a kind of complexity that a lot of Asian Americans don't want to recognize, but which we have to, and that's a crucial function of the storytelling that we can perform. We can tell stories that are about becoming Americans, or we can tell stories about becoming Americans and all the complexity that, that entails, including participating in American power and how it's wielded domestically and how it's wielded in terms of our wars overseas as well. So, so, so helpful. Um, one dimension of how narrative, how stories, you know, function as witnessing um, is something that Arundhati Roy's really perfected. And I think the uh, essay that many people, I'm sure on this phone call, uh, have read, the use of the portal to think and write about this moment, um, had in its core, you know, the story of accompaniment. Yet in this moment, the capacity, the possibility of that accompaniment is exactly what is less realizable. How do we think about this? Is this a moment where, as they say, necessity is the mother invention? So this, was, this would have been unimaginable six months ago that I could have gotten the three of you in the same room at the same time without like two years planning, right? So this has invented and created new possibilities. Are we seeing this in, in terms of what you think is possible to do? Or um, are you despairing of now what it means that we've lost you know, touch, for example, as Kiese mentioned, and Eve Ensler has been talking about it. How are we thinking about this you know, for the foreseeable future mediated connection, both in our bodies and in our politics? Um, I think, you know, when I used the word portal, I used it as a metaphor for a connection between two worlds, but also to, to underline the fact that there is a rupture. Uh, right now we are in some kind of a transit lounge and we can't, we don't really have a present. It's almost like there's a past and there's a future and somehow, how do we stitch this together? The people that are in power, the mandarins that are controlling the language of this moment are moving their chessmen very, very quickly. We have seen that uh, the, the kind of marriage between the disaster capitalists and the nationalist, chauvinist, authoritarian governments. When, when I was listening to you talking, it made me thoughtful about the way you all talk about being American and claiming Amer America's past or America's problems. Whereas here, you know, it's become so terrifying, the idea of what is Indian, who is Indian. Muslims are traitors, non-Hindus are not really Indians. The idea of thinking in these administrative country borders, you know, sort of terrifies me because, you know, the greatest enemy of India is Pakistan. But you know, 70 years ago, Pakistan and India were one country. COVID has made us emphasize and contain our thoughts within national borders, while capitalism has made this a world of refugees. Here too, when people keep talking about migrant labor, actually, they are refugees. If you think of refugees, not just from one country to another, but from one region to another. They are internal refugees who have been pushed out of their homes and their lands by huge infrastructure projects when India decided to join the free market and forget about the fact that we're a poor country, but yay, we have 63 billionaires, you know? And now these tech giants are here. Facebook has, has shook hands with a big mobile uh, phone company here and therefore given them uh, you know, access to 400 million WhatsApp users. You have the whole preparation for a surveillance state, you know, and uh, we are all being forced to download this particular app, which hasn't even been vetted. It isn't even legal that you can force people to do it. The, while we are incarcerated, but talking to each other like this and imagining what we can do, they are moving very, very fast. While human beings are looking in awe at nature, sort of regenerating in some way, in India, for example, they've already signed off a elephant sanctuary to become a coal mine, 
you know, building of big dams, of, you know, everything that has created this injustice, more of it is going to happen pretending to address the injustice and expand and continue to create a, these huge, you know, divisions that exist to deepen them. That is terrifying. And eventually we can't deal with it by going on uh, a Twitter storm, you know, that's not going to happen. Eventually we will have to be out there on the front lines, along with the frontline workers. We will, you know, because what is being planned is a kind of dystopia that is uh, that doesn't bear thinking about. I was talking to Naomi actually yesterday, and I was saying that, you know, in the 60s, we had radical revolutionary movements demanding justice, demanding the redistribution of wealth, demanding land to the tiller. And now we're just like in our home saying, can we come out, you know? And what are we even asking for? We've become a people who are right, just discussing human rights. We've forgotten the grand idea of justice. And democracy has come to mean just elections. All of us will put our energy into campaigning for whoever it is that is opposing Modi or opposing Trump, and then they'll betray us, you know? which is fine. I mean, to me, you vote for the enemy that you want to have, not for the leader that you love. But still, you know, democracy, every institution in the US has been undermined. The courts have gone, you know. So here you have, you have media that is just amplifying this hatred 24 hours a day, every day, you know, mainstream media. So, um, we, when, when we imagine another world, of course you have to first imagine it before you fight for it. And of course that is the business of, of writers and that is what uh, one has been doing for so long, you know, but what is that imagination? That imagination involves looking at a mountain with minerals in it and saying, can we leave the minerals in the mountain? Can we leave the bauxite in the mountain? Because that bauxite in the mountain serves a purpose. It, it, it works as a water tank. It's a porous rock. Bauxite is what you use to make aluminum, which is being just mined. But in, in nature, bauxite is a water tank. It holds water and it irrigates the plains. To the people who live there, it means everything. But to the, to the capitalist world, it only means anything when it's extracted. So. The imagination is, can you leave the bauxite in the mountain as you walk through the portal? You know, can you understand that this way of life uh, known as the American way of life, eventually it's even going to destroy the racists and the guys with guns and everybody, you know, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to destroy them all, of course. Thank you, Arundhati. Um, so much has been put in the mix. I'm really interested in the ways that COVID will appear in the storytelling of the future. Um, and whether this moment actually shifts the baseline about what counts as what. So we're living in a moment where absurdity and horror are the new normal. Does it empty the category of what writing looks like? So, especially with your fiction writer's hat on, how, how are you thinking about how these moments sort of reboot the baselines for what even counts as absurdity or horror? I think, you know, human beings have an infinite capacity for absurdity and horror. So, I mean, we're living under a very unique moment, you know, which it's kind of like a war because when a war happens, we're, well, let me, let me rephrase that. It's, it's kind of like World War II. When that war happened, everybody was involved. It's not true that when wars happen, everyone's involved. I and mean, we've been living through a forever war for 20 years, and most of the American population is not involved, even though it, it does actually involve all of American society. So this is a very different kind of crisis because there's no place in this country where you can go that's not touched, and there's nobody who's not touched in some way by what's taking place. So I think it's going to have a definite impact on our stories. But like I said, it's unpredictable the kind of stories we're going to get. We're going to get the, you know, I'm stuck in my New York studio apartment kind of story, and I'm worried about packages being delivered to my door. And we're going to get the kinds of stories about humiliation that Kiese has been talking about. And of course, I favor the latter kind of stories, the ones that bring out the deep tragedy and, and uh, 
the interrelated kinds of humiliations and exploitations that bind us together as Americans. I also, as someone who, who has written satirical fiction, think that nothing is beyond our capacity to satirize, as long as we're not dead. If we survive this, um, there is the, you know, with the passage of time, the possibility of seeing how what's being exposed in American society is not just a tragedy, but the absurdity of living in a country that is supposedly the capitalist American dream for all, that is beyond the reach of so many people in this country, and that we're being ruled by buffoons. <laughs> so that is also American exceptionalism as well, that you know, our history of American exceptionalism and rugged individualism has come to bite us on the ass in the figure of Donald Trump. That's absurd. Uh, and while it's painful, it's also something that we should be able to laugh at in a few years' time, again, if we're not all dead. I think the last thing I want to say, though, is that for those of us who are teachers and educators, there's another kind of storytelling we should be aware of, you know, which is the storytelling of people who are not professionals. You know, in my class on the Vietnam War, I have my students interview survivors of the Vietnam War. They do, you know, and we put these online you know, on a website called anotherwarmemorial.com. And as we're, as we're discovering, you know, some of the most interesting stories that are out there are not the stories being experienced or told by professional storytellers. It's, these are the stories of, of everyday workers, uh, you know, who are suffering in various kinds of ways who are keeping our country alive. Their stories need to be told and how do we hear them? We have to, as teachers and educators, empower our students and other storytellers to go out there and collect those stories in the absence of a government that would fund such a project and, uh, you know, turn storytelling into a collective act, into a non-elite act, so that we can get some sense of how this disaster is affecting so many average and ordinary people. I'm so glad you raised that because one of the things I was so excited about about this, um, I, I'm interested in what, how do, how do we collect? How do you see what you see and encourage a daily practice of saying to everyone, non-professional storytellers in particular, this is an important moment. Here is how, you know, I go about curating for myself. And I, I'm asking partly because you know, the days are just passing for me and I, I'm not exercising that muscle of recording. So what as a writer would you say to the rest of us about, you know, curating this moment for the future? If we're creating a time capsule with a little bit of all of us, what do you, what do you direct us to as to how to, to, to make this a practice? Well, you know, I have the same relationship. You know, I, for the last couple of months, I've been sort of just wallowing around in this formless, timeless vacuum and absorbing all this horrible news and these terrible stories and so on. And now I started to take notes because I'm writing a nonfiction book, which began well before this era. But now I think I can't write this book without taking into account the framing of what's taking place. So I need to take notes. And that's why I brought up the death count. It's an unfortunate kind of thing. I'm sure it disturbs and traumatizes people. But, you know, I'm in the business of writing about war and refugees and so on. It's disturbing. And we, we need to, to take notes on what's taking place. So we all have the capacity to do that in our different ways. But one of the things that certainly is different about this moment versus let's say World War II is that we have a democratization of media for better and for worse. We use our cameras to reveal all kinds of horrible things that are happening in American society uh, from you know, police shooting black people to other kinds of things that are taking place. Now we have that technology that everyday people can record their stories and we're starting to see some of that, you know, on Twitter and other kinds of media. And it's been powerful in that sense to get a window into the lives of ordinary Americans who are telling us what they're undergoing. So in the end, everybody's story is universal. Everybody's story is important to themselves and to their families. And everybody, has, everybody should recognize that these stories need to be told. It's not just the people who are professors of writing programs or novelists or whatever who get to tell these stories. We, we have to emphasize that everybody's story is unique and they have the capacity to broadcast that now. Um, Kiese, uh, Viet mentioned humor. I think for some people, um, there's a sense that humor is for the future, not for the now. How do you think about that, uh, particularly in the middle of this moment as a writer? <laughs> I mean, again, I'm black and from Mississippi, so Humor is the yesterday, the today, and tomorrow. Um, and most of the people who I hang around with, to go back to something Via said, you know, are not writers. And I feel like that is a blessing. And they are the most ingenious storytellers in the world. So I do a lot of listening. I do a lot of recording. Um, but, you know, what I'm, what I'm really trying to concretely think about now, Kim, is, like, I, I just work on the assumption that one of the things that I think describes Americans 
generally is that we're really bad at loving the people we purport to love, right? We're really bad at love. And that can be parents not really loving children the way they should, children not loving parents, partners not loving partners, but also on a micro level, like, you know, the patriots who love America are some of the most hateful Americans in, in the world. And so, like, what I'm thinking about is, like, structurally, how do we slash I love differently if, for example, there were a healthy jobs mandate, right? Meaning every worker in this country was guaranteed an amazing wage, amazing health care, and the amazing ability to leave that job and exit into another healthy job if if they if they wanted to. People talk about that's the that maybe people might say that's the work of like cartoons. But I'm interested in like what that does, not just to like the money, the economy, our literal health, but what does it do to the health of our relationships? How do we treat the people who we purport to love better or worse if these structural changes happen? And what I'm scared of is like maybe the individual changes have to happen before the revolution, revolutions necessary to make these structural changes do happen. Conversely, because I'm from Mississippi, I'm also wondering what happens if these like, you know, white supremacist regionalists actually stop being white supremacist regionalists and actually started being regionalists. Like, because to be a real regionalist, if you're from the deep South, necessitates that you value, right? The black folk and mostly like the black women who made like this region possible. And if you extend that, like what would an Americanism, a patriotism look like if it really loved the, the labor and valued the labor of folks who have made the economy move and grow and all that shit for all of these years? So I'm interested in those big questions, but I'm much more interested in like how those big questions impact the way we touch each other, the way we make love, the way we do not make love, the way we sleep, what we eat, how we feel. Um, and I have to write fiction and nonfiction because those are like the questions that I care the most about. And when I talk to my people who are not writers, that imaginative exercise is something they're really interested in exploring. And then I just have to try to channel some of what we, what, what, what we come up with. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just don't want to lose the macro for the, for the, for the, for the, for the individual and individual for the relationship. Because at the end of the day, I kind of stupidly think that's what is the most important thing in the world. How does your fiction and nonfiction selves talk to each other? Do you just have stuff and you go, okay, you, you, take, you take that one, KSA fiction writer, you take that one, KSA essay writer? The fiction part of my body and brain is just always interested in what if, and that's sort of what I was just talking about just there. And, 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 and because fiction takes so long to create and audiences are so far away, I can't use audience perceptions really to dictate how I move. But the nonfiction writer in me is much more interested in like, how can I be better tomorrow? And how can I present this art to somebody who might read it tomorrow, might read it in a few months. And it's just like being a student again, how can I ignorantly posit some like theory based in like life, my life that I think happened and then have it come back to me. So one of them is about one if, what if, and then nonfiction is about how can I and we get better, you know? And I think the nonfiction and the fiction mingle and shit like that, but at the core, the what if is the fiction. The how can we get better is how can I selfishly get better is really what I'm doing in my nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And and Aaron Jadia, you too are, have fairly distinct careers as fiction and nonfiction, but all linked. Do those two parts of your voices dialogue with one another? How do you think differently um, when you are writing in one genre as opposed to another? You know, my, my fiction and nonfiction selves are, are so linked. I feel like I'm a sort of se a sedimentary rock, you know, with my nonfiction is just layers and layers of me from traveling, walking through river valleys and forests and mountains and guerrilla wars and, you know, all of that. But every time I write nonfiction, it is to, to try and break a bullying consensus that is being created by the mainstream media at a moment at which it's about to attack, like physically with soldiers and guns, attack vulnerable communities. And you know, that attack is preceded by the demonization of that community, whatever it is, you know, whether it's people protesting a dam or whether it's gorillas in the forest, whatever. So my nonfiction comes out of a very argumentative, 
very focused. My body is like in a fury. I can hardly sleep. I just work like that. And my fiction is like, I'm in no hurry. Uh, it's a dance. It's like you're trying to create a universe for somebody that you love and walk them through it, you know, to say, this is how it was. And while you're asking about this COVID moment and how does one go out and grasp it, you know, as we are speaking, Kimberly, I have to tell you that I have almost every friend of mine who I have worked with over the years is in jail. Is in jail, serving life sentences, being called terrorists uh, under the Unlawful Activities Act. You know, we talk about refugees in the world in India. Uh, an anti-Muslim citizenship law is making refugees out of citizens. The protests that happened just before this COVID crisis hit, the state hasn't stopped doing anything. It's arresting students, picking them up, putting them in jail. There's such a fear of every word you write, every comma you put, where is it, what's going to happen, who's going to do what to whom, you know? The danger is so imminent. Uh, just as in the U.S., here too, the jails are, are full of people who are now getting infected and, you know, friends, and some of them are not even young people, 80 years old, one person, a poet, in jail where, uh, you know, this disease is just so rampant. So it's such a dangerous moment, you know, where the state is moving so fast to shut down everything so that when things open up, the protests that were had millions of people on the march don't start up again. So everyone who's been thought of as a local leader, someone is being put into jail. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron Daddy. Want to just circle back one more time to uh, Kiese and Viet. You know, as a lawyer, someone asked me, well, okay, so what's your use value? What, what do you bring to a pandemic? I would say, well, what I think I bring to it is, you know, sort of the false necessity of the existing structures for sorting out how we move forward. So I want to offer up um, how the platforms that we think are just there are constructed and they don't have to be constructed. That, so that, that's what the lawyer brings to the pandemic. What does the writer bring? I mean, <laughs> this could start the conversation all over again, but <laughs> I think what we need, I think what I need to be aware of, and hopefully all of us need to be aware of, is that what the writer can bring is much more terror. And I think that we often think about writing as like this panacea, talk about writers and imbue them with some certain kind of like innocence or glow. But I think one of the reasons we are in the place we are now is because of the failure of writers. So writers can bring terror. And I think it's part of our jobs to not bring terror. And I also want to say it, it's hard because, you know, one of the things that I think we have to do in an empire is that I know lots of people who are much more readily interested in deconstructing like American empire than they are deinvesting themselves from anti-Black racism. And so we are all potential terrorists as, as writers. And I just think we need to hold that to heart. That's, that would be that would that would be what I think. Thank you, Casey. Viet. Well, you know, as a college student, I was both an activist and a wannabe writer. And being an activist never made me feel guilty. Being a wannabe, being a writer, wannabe writer made me feel guilty. Like maybe I wasn't doing enough. Like how do I enact real change in this world? I need to actually go out there, join an organization, engage in movement politics, and these kinds of things. And I think those are absolutely really necessary. But I've learned how to, I, I, you know, I'm learning how not to feel guilty as a writer. Because writers are really crucial to change, to movements, to politics, because one of the things that we can do is imagine new worlds, imagine relationships with other people, uh, both at an emotional level, but also in a political level as well. And so we still need our storytellers to tell us the stories of who we are, where we've been, where we can go. And the other thing about storytellers that I think are really crucial is that the good storytellers are the ones who look within themselves. They, 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 they make us feel things because they can feel things. They make, they make us feel our vulnerability and our hurt and our pain because they go inside themselves to feel those kinds of things. That, that's, that's a hard thing to do. It's taken me decades to be able to get to the point where I can try to be vulnerable with myself so that I can be vulnerable in my writing so that I can connect with, with other people. And that is both a personal uh, 
challenge for the writer, but it's also one that we, we enact collectively as a society. I mean, many of the problems that we have as a society are due to the fact that many people don't want to look at the vulnerability and the pain and the hurt that are constitutive of American life, right? And so writers do that function for us. And I think it's a, it's a very important reason why many people don't want to be writers because it's a hard thing to do, not just the art of writing, but the task of looking within yourself. And if anything, those of us, you know, we're undergoing a period of isolation, we are left alone with ourselves. It's terrifying for so many people besides the physical and economic limitations, the psychological problem of being alone with yourself is terrifying, but writers deal with that every day. And so, you know, we, uh, for better or worse, can be a model for how to try to cope with that experience. Yes. And the three of you are certainly a model for me. I couldn't thank you enough for this amazing conversation. And I want to thank all our listeners for joining us as well. Of course, this wouldn't have been possible without the time and the hard work of our team at the African American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. And of course, a very, very special thank you to our panelists, Viet Thanh Nguyen, Arundhati Roy, and Kiese Lehman. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.